good friend of mine uh, is here to bring us God's Word, and I think you're really going to enjoy uh, what he has from God's Word to bring us. Uh, Jim Donahue is a pastor at our sister church down in the Philadelphia area, and that's where actually I interned, so Peg and I and our children were there for about a year, had a great year there. And, uh, and it got to know Jim during that year, served under him in evangelism. So he's a, he's a pastor there. He's responsible for helping evangelism be a, a, a part of the culture in that church. And, and we as a church really want to grow in this area. So I'm excited to have Jim. Jim's been here since Friday with uh, Jacob as well. Uh, so welcome, guys. It's great to have you with us. Uh, Jim's, I think you'll experience, even as he brings God wor- God's word, his heart to reach those who don't know Christ uh, is, is an example to me. His life uh, is an example. Also, he, he is a man of wisdom. Uh, he, he doesn't just come with a heart and experience, but he comes with wisdom from God's Word, wisdom from pastoral experience of, in helping us as a church. He's really come alongside us and came, uh, has come up this weekend just to serve us, to help us do better at this area that we want to grow in. Um, so his, his example, his heart, his wisdom is something we can benefit from, and I think you'll enjoy that as well as he comes to bring us God's Word. So let's welcome Jim. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, man. All right. Am I on? You guys? Good. Well, thank you so much for having me. It really is uh, It's great to be here and uh, just to... Love coming up into this area, and certainly to see Paul and Peg are just dear uh, friends of ours. We just had such a rich time, wonderful time with them uh, for the year that they were here with us. And I think it was with you, was it one other time when we were back in the YMCA, so I got to, to come up and spend a little time here. So uh, it is great to be here. It's been great to um, be here with Mike uh, and Enza and their family, with uh, Ethan and Nick, and just hanging out with them. We've had a wonderful time, so thanks so much for, um, for letting me come up here and, and love the building. It's just a great, it's the first time I'm here and, and uh, really cool. So um, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 24, I want to talk to you this morning about how the church in the book of Acts is called to gather together And they're also called to go. And we see this pattern where they're gathering and then they're going out to share the gospel. And I want to start in the book of Luke, the very end of Luke, Luke 24 and verse 45. And the start of, and the end of Luke is kind of like the beginning of Acts because Luke wrote both of those books. And so I want to just catch this at the very end of Luke. So Luke chapter 24 and verse 45 This is Jesus speaking. It says, Then he opened their minds, and he's talking about the disciples. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And that's a very important concept, especially in the book of Acts. They are witnesses. They're called to witness to what they've seen and what they've experienced. So he says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city 
until you are clothed with power from on high. There is a message that needs to be proclaimed. It is a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You can repent and be forgiven of your sins. That is an incredible message. And it's a message that people need to hear. There are people all around you. There are family members and coworkers and friends and classmates and neighbors who need to hear the message that you can repent and be forgiven of your sins. This is the most important message in the world. And God gave the disciples the privilege of sharing this incredible good news. Jesus says we're going to start in Jerusalem and then we're going to work our way out. And I need witnesses. I need people who have experienced firsthand this forgiveness, who know what it's like to be forgiven of their sins, who have tasted this, who have experienced it. It's not going to be enough for me to just pay somebody. Jesus wasn't going to pay people to share this message. He wasn't going to pay people to be witnesses. That would not work. He needs people that have believed in this message, that believe it deeply and have experience. See, it, it doesn't work if you try to sell something that you don't believe in. It doesn't work. If I had to sell Yankees merchandise, that wouldn't work. Now, I, I, know I'm, I knew I was going to get some amens in this church. I thought, there's one thing we have in common. I and my wife told me I can't say hate. I intensely despise the New York Yankees, okay? I, I love the Phillies. I absolutely love the Phillies. Oh, easy. I kind of like Boston too, but I'm from the Philadelphia area. At least we hate the same team. But if I had Yankees merchandise, I would not sell it. I would just burn it. I'd put it in a big pile and I'd just burn it up. Now I have you back with me again. I... I <laughs> I, I see how this works. But why is that? Because I believe in the Phils. I love the Phils. That is my baseball team. Why do people need to believe the message of the gospel so deeply? Well, because proclaiming this message is going to be a little scary. Uh, it's challenging. It's going to be a little bit dangerous. And, and it's going to take some sacrifice. See, here is the big problem for the early church that confronts us at the end of Luke. We need witnesses, but our witnesses are scared to death. Our witnesses are scared to death. Now imagine if you were Peter or one of those first disciples. Your leader, Christ, has just been double-crossed, brutally tortured and murdered. He hung on a cross. One of your friends, one of the disciples, betrayed him with a kiss. All of you ran for your lives and left him alone, and now you have locked all the doors, and you're hiding. You've barred the doors. You're scared to death because of these Jews. You're next in line. They just killed your leader. You're next. See, the problem is that these witnesses were scared to death, and they had good reason to be. The Jewish leaders were strong. 
I mean, these guys were a force to be reckoned with. They just crucified Jesus. The disciples are next on the list. They were literally one knock on the door away from being captured and possibly crucified themselves. These fears and concerns were real. These guys are not just making this up. All of the disciples were persecuted and stoned and beaten and imprisoned and murdered for their faith except for John. And some were even crucified. They had good reason to lock the doors and to be afraid. They were too scared to be witnesses. And the religious leaders, they had all the political power. They had the money. They controlled the media. They had the authority. They had the popularity. And it's similar today. There, there's a lot of opposition out these doors. It's a hostile environment. Now, it's not hostile like it was in biblical times, at least not in this country. But the Christians don't have the political power. We don't control the media. We don't have the money and the authority and the popularity. And we can be scared when it comes to sharing the gospel, can't, can't we? Let's all just admit this. I think this would help if we admit this. You, you know, you've heard of like AA and NA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, let's call this EA, okay, Evangelism Anonymous. You don't have to share your last name, but you do have to admit that you're scared, okay? We all have to admit that there is a problem. We're scared, right? I'm scared. We're afraid of what people might think about us. We're afraid that we might be rejected. We're afraid that we might look foolish. We're afraid that we won't know what to say. We're scared. And so like the disciples, we just, what, huddle together. We lock the doors. We try to keep this hostile world out. We're afraid. So what do we do? How are we going to solve this problem? Well, that brings us to Acts. Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. And Jesus gives us a solution. So turn there, if you will, to Acts chapter 1. Now, the first solution that the disciples came up with was let's not be witnesses. Let's not share this good news. Let's just lock the doors and kind of keep it to ourselves. Now, in the beginning of Acts, we see that Jesus has returned. He's been raised from the dead, and they propose solution number two, and we see that in verse six. So when they had come together, Acts 1-6, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. This is their second solution. The first solution to being scared is lock the doors and keep people out. The second solution is, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, Jesus, are you going to give us the political power? Are we going to take over? Are we going to get these Romans out of here and then we can, we can be the authority. We can control the media. We'll have the money and the power. We'll tell people what to believe. In other words, are we going to, Jesus, are you going to take away the fear and the opposition? Can we annihilate the opposition so that we are not scared? See, that's what they're asking. They're saying, Jesus, is this what you're going to do? Are you going to take away the persecution? Are you going to make it easy for us? Are you going to make evangelism easy for something that we can do and again we come up with similar solutions we're very much like these disciples we lock the doors that's one solution we have many different ways of doing that we can make excuses we can say well i don't really have the gift of evangelism i'll just leave that to others 
So that way I don't have to do it. And we can just lock the doors, even just to insulate and isolate ourselves and try to keep the world away. Even something good like homeschooling. My wife and I homeschool our children. Even something like that can just insulate and we're just gonna protect ourselves from the world and just kind of shut things out and try to keep all of that away. It can become an excuse, a way that we lock our doors. Or we can try to change the message. We can try to soften it. That's one way we can avoid persecution. If we kind of soften this message and modify it so it doesn't seem as offensive. We can come up with lots of ways to avoid doing evangelism. But what is the solution? What is the Lord's solution? How can we overcome the fear and persecution? How can we be witnesses in such a hostile environment? Well, look again at verse, let's read verses six through eight. So again, remember they came together, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you, and here's a solution, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus, is it gonna be an external power, a political power? No. It's gonna be an internal power, the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us boldness to overcome the fear and to share anyway. See, one of the things I've found in evangelism, I've been doing evangelism since I was saved in college for about 20 years. One of the things I've found is that every time I go to share the gospel or to reach out to someone, I'm scared. There's fear. You would think that just sharing the gospel a lot, you would just get so comfortable with it, and it would be so easy for someone like me, my job is evangelism, it's just going to be so easy, I'm never going to fear, there's going to be no fear. Wrong. There's always fear. What I've learned in 20 years of trying to share the gospel is to recognize that fear and overcome it and do it anyway. We can wait around for the fear to disappear. Guess what? It's never going to disappear. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to take away the persecution. I'm going to make this safe. He says, I'm going to put the Spirit of God in you so that you're bold. I'm going to give you boldness to overcome your fears and to do it anyway. That's God's solution. That's what he means when he says he's going to clothe us with power. It's power to overcome these fears and to be his witnesses. So the big problem is our fear And the big solution comes in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes. So you remember Acts chapter 1, we just read some of that. Then they have to replace Judas. And then in Acts chapter 2, you remember this, the Holy Spirit comes and what happens? He fills the disciples and they begin to speak in tongues. Do you remember this? They begin to speak in other languages. It says declaring the praises of God. They, in a sense, have become witnesses to other nations. They're already sharing the good news to other nations in a language they can't even speak. That is amazing. They couldn't even speak these languages. Now they're proclaiming the gospel. God can get this done. He's already getting this done. He's making them right here witnesses to the nations. He can do this. He has the power to do this. 
Maybe you feel weak. Maybe you feel inadequate. Like there's no way that you're not doing it now. You'll never be able to do it. God can do this. He has the power. We might be scared and intimidated, but the spirit of God lives in us and he gives us the power to overcome. So, so really the disciples kind of got started by witnessing to the nations, but, but what about witnessing to the Jews in Jerusalem? How is that going to work? I mean, the Jews just killed Jesus for this message. How are they going to respond? Do you remember after they're filled with the Spirit, Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel. How, what are they going to do? How are they going to respond? Well, look at verse 37. Chapter 2 and verse 37. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. There's our message again. Do you see that? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You can repent and be forgiven of your sins. And it says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness. There it is again, witness. And continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's our message. You see it again and again in Acts. Repentance for the forgiveness of of sins. But here's something important that we see in verse 39. This is not just a promise for us. It says it's for you and your children and for those who are far off. It is not just a message for you. And it's not just a message for your children. It's for those who are far from Christ. It's for those who are far away. It is not a message that we are meant to keep to ourselves or to our family. It is a message for those who are far away from God. We have the joy of running a course, uh, running the Alpha course in our church, and we have seen some people that are incredibly hostile and angry come to Christ. We have a woman that just, we just finished up an alpha course, and she was a Mormon for 20 years. Um, she had lost her fiancé uh, in the Twin Towers September 11th. He had died. She had lots of tragedy in her life, and she had been strong in the Mormon church for 20 years. She was hostile. She came in. She was angry. She would argue with me. She was mad at me. She would say she's not coming back every week, and then she would come back. And God just soft. she was far, she was so far. She thought she could become God. That's how far she was. And as she came week after week and heard the preaching of the gospel, her heart softened and she let go and she trusted in Christ. And next week she's going to be baptized in front of our entire church. Amen. Yeah, God is good. The forgiveness of sins, listen. The forgiveness of sins is not just for us. It's come to us, yes. But it is for those who are far away. It is for those who are far from Christ. The gospel is a gift. Yes, it's for you. Yes, it's for children. But it is for the lost. We cannot keep this to ourselves. It is a gift that's meant to be shared. Now, I am an identical twin and... There's some wonderful things about growing up as a twin, but there are some things that are not so good. 
Um, one of the things that's not so good is that sometimes people will get this idea that they can get the twins a gift and they can just share it. <laughs> it's a horrible idea. If you ever have the idea, I'll just get one and they share it. Don't do that. Money up and buy two gifts, okay? <laughs> I remember one time my dad, my brother and I were really into skateboarding and we just had like a plastic thing and we were really wanting this new skateboard. And so my dad finally broke down, we, we broke him down and he went and got us this skateboard. The problem is he got us one skateboard. We would have been better off breaking it in half because that's basically what we did because we were fighting over it so much. So we, we, we really didn't, we didn't do a good job sharing gifts. And most of the time it doesn't work well to share gifts. But guess what, with the gospel it's different. This is a gift that's meant to be shared. It works to share this gift. We are called to share this gift. We are called to go. Now we're also called to gather. And we see that in the book of Acts. Look at Acts 2.42. So they're out sharing the gospel. 3,000 people are at it. Now they're gathering back together. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we are called to go, but we're also called to gather. And we see a very distinct pattern of this in the book of Acts. I think I have a diagram of this I don't know if you guys have that, but the pattern is this, that there is prayer followed by the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then that results in evangelism and fellowship. And, and this is actually my own artwork that I wanted to show you here. Um, I really had a lot of trouble with the spigot, but uh, okay, so, so this is it. So prayer, it's kind of like turning the tap on, and then what happens is there's a filling of the Holy Spirit and it overflows into two things. Fellowship and evangelism. Both, the Holy Spirit is doing both of those things. As we are filled, as we pray, we're asking God to fill us with the Spirit. Two things are happening, deeper fellowship and evangelism. And I have another, do you have the other drawing? I, I really was excited about this, so I made another drawing. So if, I don't know if you can understand what that is. So, so the one is like a, is it like a, called a bellows? Is that what it is? A little tiny hand bellows, right? Okay, so that's like prayer and the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's like this fire and it results in fellowship and evangelism. So both of those things are going on. When we are filled with the Spirit, we receive boldness to overcome those fears and do evangelism, but we also go deeper into fellowship. The Spirit of God gave this church a love for preaching and prayer and communion and worship and giving. They weren't doing most of these things before the Holy Spirit came, but now through the power of the Holy Spirit, they are committed to the church. They're committed to each other. They're unified. They're maturing in Christ. They're full of gratefulness. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Clear pattern in Acts. Prayer, filling, 
And then we see evangelism and fellowship. Now, let me make one other point about this that I think is very important. We must never, we must never pit evangelism and fellowship against one another. They are not enemies. They're actually just different ways of spending time with people. Both are meant to be essential parts of the Christian life. Now, I have one more diagram. This, this one isn't I just got carried away with diagrams, but this is just, this is, it's just a line. Um, but this is how Christians spend time with people. So on the one side, you have evangelism when you're spending time with people who don't know Christ, right? Outreach to the lost, you can call that. Um, on the other side is fellowship when you're spending time with believers. You can call that outreach to believers. Uh, on the one side with evangelism are messages to proclaim the gospel, when we're with believers in fellowship, it's the same message. We're fellowshipping around the gospel. The Christian life is not that complicated. When you're with believers, you should be doing everything you can to help them become better followers of Christ. Encourage one another, love one another, help them become a better follower of Christ. When you're with unbelievers, you should help them become followers of Christ. Help them start following Christ. And the message is the same. It is the message of the gospel. Now, if you can keep that up for a second, do you, do you tend, let me ask you this question, do you tend to spend more time with the lost, with people who don't know Christ, or with Christians? Where, where are you stronger? Which area are you stronger in? Do you neglect one for the sake of the other? Now, some people, not, not most people, but some people tend to focus more on evangelism. They're more comfortable on that side. But most of us tend toward the fellowship side. It's not as scary. It's more comfortable. I'd rather spend time with my friends. Where would you place yourself on this? Everybody, look there. Where would you place yourself? Put a little dot where you would place yourself. Do you have friendship with unbelievers? Not do you know unbelievers. Do you have friends? Do you spend time with them? We, should. we, we shouldn't be all the way over on the fellowship side. We should be somewhere toward the middle. Maybe it's not a dot, but we should be around toward that middle section to some Degree. We don't need to settle for either or. Do you hear me on that? It should not be an either or. God has called us to gather together, and he's called us to go. He's called us to both of those things. Now, one of the wonderful things that we discover is that God has created these things to reinforce one another. When we gather together, it strengthens us to go. One of the reasons we're gathering here this morning is to be strengthened to go out and declare the gospel. And when we go out to declare, we can call people to come back to the gathering. We can invite people to gather with us. And I want to talk for a moment just about the evangelistic impact of Sunday mornings. We see it in verse 47 here. It says, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They had a corporate witness. Their corporate witness was irresistible. They had favor because the gospel had so clearly and visibly changed their lives. 
people could actually see the effects of the gospel on them. And it, it, it gave them favor with the people. God was using their gatherings to point people to Christ. Now, what makes our Sunday mornings effective in reaching people? Because you wouldn't think that Sundays would do that. Most of the things that we do on Sundays are not directly targeted to guests, so you wouldn't really think it would have an evangelistic impact, but it does. Let me share just briefly nine ways that Sunday morning contributes to evangelism. The first is congregation, and that is that our corporate witness gives us credibility. If you're reaching out to your neighbor, your neighbor can view you as an exception. Maybe it's a coworker or a classmate. They can view you as an exception. They can say, oh, I just have this really nice neighbor. I mean, they're really nice. They have really nice kids. And they're polite. They bake me cookies. I couldn't believe that. They're just a really nice family. It must be, I don't know, in the water or something, or they just have good genes or something. I don't know. But if they come here to church and they see an entire church like that, they can't write you off. There's a whole group of people that have been transformed. There's a group of people that love Christ and seem to be friendly. They're going to take notice of that. Secondly is preaching. Preaching plays a critical role in reaching lost men and women. Peter preaches here. He stands up and preaches this first sermon, and 3,000 are saved and baptized. When you bring people to church here, they're going to hear the gospel. They will hear the message of the gospel. How about worship? Worship is a tremendous witness. When people see worship, they see, what they're seeing is that the truth of the gospel means something to us. They see passion and sincerity. They see people who have been transformed. If someone is really passionate about something, it usually makes us interested. When I came on to staff uh, as a pastor about 15 years ago, um, I really didn't, wasn't interested in college basketball, didn't follow college basketball, never paid attention. One of the guys on staff was passionate about college basketball and the Final Four. And he was just all over. I mean, he would just talk about this, and this is incredible. Oh, it's so much better than pro basketball. Those guys, he would slam that and just talk about how this college and the buzzer beaters. Blah, blah, blah. And, and his passion just sucked me in. I mean, after a time, I just thought, well, there's got to be something to this. That's what happens when, when you're really passionate about, when something means something to you, it draws other people in. And I can't tell you how many times people have come to visit our church for the first time, and they've said, I, I, dozens of times I've heard this, they cried all the way through worship. They see people that love Christ, and that has an effect on them. How about the prophecy? How about the gift of prophecy? In 1 Corinthians 14, 24, it says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. We have seen God use the gift of prophecy in powerful ways. After we have our baptisms at the end of the service, we invite the family to come down, and we just take some time to pray. We have a prophetic team, and they will pray for the folks who are baptized. Sometimes they get words for the parents or the relatives who don't know Christ. That is powerful. How about prayer? When the unsaved hear us passionately praying, they are hearing, they're listening to a group of people who know God and who speak to Him. 
last year in the bridge course, I was talking to this, um, these two girls and, and they were uh, just, you know, disagreeing with a lot of the stuff and they just really weren't there and, and they were more into kind of the whole world party scene. And we were talking, we had talked a lot and one of the things the girls just said to me, she said, she was talking about Jesus and she just said, you act like you know him. And I just smiled, I said, I, I do know him. That, that's what people see when we pray. We pray like we know him. We do know him. And that's a powerful witness. How about communion? It's a wonderful demonstration. Communion is a wonderful demonstration of Christ's sacrifice. It's a visible reminder of what Christ has done. We want unbelievers to see us participating in the Lord's Supper, for them to see our love for the cross. How about baptism? Baptism is a wonderful testimony of God transforming a life, even to the point that this person would be willing to be baptized and to declare their faith in front of a group of people. How about giving? My one grandfather, who was a very religious man, he was not a Christian. He was hostile to true Christianity. But he used to call my brother and I, when we became Christians, he called us the 10 percenters. And he was referring to tithing there because we believed in tithing and giving. And he just thought that was way over the top. He's like, ah, you 10 percenters. That's good. I, I wasn't giving 10% of my money to anyone or anything before I became a Christian. But the Spirit of God came and transformed me and transformed my wallet as well. And that was a witness to him. How about children's ministry? I have talked to many, many unbelievers who are visiting our church and they've told me that they've come to church this morning because their kids had such a good time in children's ministry that they woke them up to bring them to church. Many times. I've seen it in Alpha too, same thing. Mom fell asleep on the couch. Wake up, Mom. We got Alpha. What is that? That is the testimony of our God using our children's ministry to bring people. Now, even though all these things are primarily designed to strengthen and build up the church, they have a secondary effect of promoting and proclaiming the gospel. It is a powerful tool that we have. A community that gathers together, pursues God together, and is united will be a community that God empowers with his spirit for mission. God does great things when we gather. That's why we should be regularly inviting people to church. We should be calling people and asking them to come in. And some of you are doing a great job with this. I was just talking to Eddie and just all the people that he's inviting. And others, you guys are doing a great job. Some of you, maybe not so much. Maybe you're not really thinking about it. You're not really inviting people. God wants us to invite people to come here. And as pastors, your pastors, my pastors, we're committed to this. We're committed to leading by example. See, when we gather, we are strengthened and motivated to go and proclaim the gospel. And that is one of the reasons that gathering is so important. But here's one other thing. I just want to make this point. When we gather, one of the most important things that happens is that we encounter Christ. And we encounter the love of God. As we hear the preaching, as we're worshiping, as we encounter that, and we experience the love of Christ, when it is real to us, 
if the love of Christ isn't something that you just kind of check a box and say, yeah, does he, oh yeah, sure, he loves, no. But you know it, and you feel the love of Christ, and you're amazed at him saving you, and amazed at what God has done. As you encounter that, it moves you, it motivates you to go and share. When it's that real, when it's that real to us, we won't be able to contain it. We won't keep it in. We will love God so much that we will have to share this good news. It's one of the ways we become witnesses. Evangelism is not so much about techniques and strategies and methods. It's about treasuring the Savior. It's about loving Jesus. And when we love him enough, we will share him. Now, when we gather together on Sundays, it's important to understand that these meetings are not an end in and of themselves. They are designed to strengthen us so that we can go out. They are designed, these meetings, so that we would be strengthened and encouraged and built up so that we can go out. The Christian life is not about just waiting around for the next Sunday to come. That's not what it's like. It's witnesses being sent out into a lost and dying world every week. That's what's supposed to be happening. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a football huddle. I think this illustration will help. It's like a football huddle. A football huddle is critical to the success of the game. So when you come into that football huddle, that's a nice place. You know, the other the enemy's kind of over there, and you're getting banged up. So, okay, so over here we can rest in the huddle. Um, our friends are in the huddle. Uh, we can hear what the next play. It's very strategic. What are what our next play is? We can get kind of encouraged. Like there's encouragement there in that huddle. There's, it's instructive, it's easy, it's more comfortable in the huddle, right? It's easier. But we're not supposed to stay in the huddle. We're not supposed to live in the huddle. And that's what the Holy Spirit does here. The disciples are huddled up, they got the doors locked. And the Holy Spirit comes in and throws a flag, delay of game. You guys got to get out there. You got to get into the game. You're not meant to just stay back in here. Go. And it's like that in football too. You, you and, and in our lives, it's the same thing. You got to go run the play. And, and in our lives, it's just like that. We, and this analogy works well because on Sunday we huddle up. We get strengthened. We get help. It's strategic. Then we go out. Maybe we don't score a touchdown. Maybe we get a little banged up. Maybe we get a little beat up. Maybe it doesn't work. And then we come back and huddle up again. And we get strengthened again. And then we go back out and we run another play. And then we come back and huddle and then we run another play and we take the ball down the field. We are called, listen, we are called to gather, yes. And we are called to go. We are called to go. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. So at the end of chapter two, they're gathering. And then chapter three, they go. Do you remember the story in chapter three? This lame beggar is healed. Remember, and Peter proclaims the gospel. Guess what? Another 2,000 more are saved. But then guess what happens? Chapter 4, they're arrested. They are arrested. The persecution and danger does not go away. Their earlier fear that they were going to be captured, it's realized right now. Remember they were afraid that they were going to be captured? Well, they're, they're captured right here, chapter 4. They are captured and they're standing trial. Listen to this. They are standing trial before the high priest, before Caiaphas. 
and the high priest before the Sanhedrin, the ones who just killed Christ, they should be scared to death. Can you imagine this? This is their worst fear. They arrested us. We're standing here in front of the high priest. And you know what it says in chapter 4 in verse 8. It's just, it is extraordinary. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, roars and people and elders. He preaches the gospel. He's standing in front of Caiaphas. And he preaches the gospel to Caiaphas. And to all those leaders, this is extraordinary boldness. Now you may say, well, that's just Peter. He's a bold guy. No, he wasn't. He was afraid of a servant girl. He was afraid of a little girl. He denied Christ. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not his own ability. And just so that you know that, verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It was not his own ability. Common, uneducated men. And I don't know why, but that really encourages me. Declaring the gospel is for common, uneducated people. And I, I, I find encouragement. I, I think we can all find ourselves in that verse. We're not disqualified. Proclaiming the gospel is for us all. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what happens? Well, and then they gather together. Verse 23, and you know what they do? They pray. Do they pray that the opposition would be overthrown? Did they pray that there would be an easier path for the gospel? Did they pray that persecution would be eliminated? Did they pray that the hearts of unbelievers would be open to the gospel? All those would be fine prayers. They didn't pray any of those. Look at verse 29. And this is their prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Who did they pray for? They prayed for themselves. Most of the evangelistic prayers in the Bibles are not prayers for the lost. They're prayers for ourselves. God, give me boldness. Help me to overcome these fears. They said, Lord, you, you see the threats. You know what they're about. You know what they're going to try to do. God, give us boldness. Help us to keep doing what you have called us to do. They need power. They need boldness. What they're doing is not safe. Christianity is not safe. If you signed up thinking that following Christ was safe and comfortable, you're going to get a bad deal. Christianity is not safe and comfortable. If you want safe and comfortable, you're in the wrong place. If you want safe and comfortable, go, I don't know, go stay in a nice hotel. That's safe and comfortable. It's the only thing I could think of that was safe and comfortable. Listen, we are called to do things that are unsafe to our reputation and uncomfortable to our flesh. We are all called to the dangerous work of the gospel. See, most evangelistic prayers are not prayers to limit the opposition, to make it easier, to even open people's hearts to the gospel. They are prayers for ourselves because our greatest hindrance is not out there. Our greatest hindrance is in here. It's the fear that lives in our hearts. Maybe we've been going about this all wrong. 
Maybe what we need to do to be more evangelistic is pray more and pray that God would fill us with his spirit. So often when we pray for the filling of the spirit, Christians can view this as very personal. I just need the Holy Spirit to bless me. I need him to give me comfort. And we can think of this kind of personal, and there is a personal aspect to the filling of the Spirit, what the work of the Spirit. But in the book of Acts, you never see the filling of the Holy Spirit being just an inward personal thing. It's always meant to go out. It's always blessing that you take out. It's never blessing that just stays with you. You are filled so that you can go out, so that you can share that blessing. See, we have the same problem as the early church. We're scared, we're fearful, and we also have the same solution, the Holy Spirit. Grace comes to us, not by eliminating the opposition, not by making things easy or comfortable, but by making us depend upon God, by making us cry out to him in prayer so that we too might be clothed with power from on high, so that the gospel might go forth in the strength of God, so that many might come to know the forgiveness of their sins, and God would receive all the glory. And then in verse 31, he ends this section. I love this verse, one of my favorite verses. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. I've always been waiting for that in my prayer meetings. I've been waiting for an earthquake. Because I just think it's powerful. You know what I mean? You're praying and there's an earthquake. That's cool. So they were praying, and the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all, here they are, prayer, then filling with the Holy Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And then the next section, right below it, oh, they gathered together again. Our gathering is vital to our going. It's vital to our growth and vital for our mission. Sunday mornings play a central role in our strategy to worship, walk, and witness. And by God's grace, may we be a church committed to gathering and committed to going. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. God, we're scared, and we just admit it right now. We're fearful. We would rather lock the doors. We'd rather bar the doors. We'd rather be comfortable. We want things to be easy. We don't want to look like a fool. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want people to look down on us. Lord, we have made every excuse in the book. God, fill us with your spirit and overcome these fears so that we might have boldness and we might do it anyway. God, help us to build relationships with our neighbors. Help us to take the steps to have them, uh, to include them in our lives and have them over for dinner, to reach out to them. I pray for our coworkers, our family members who are lost, classmates, Lord. I pray, God, would you use us and Lord, I pray that we would no longer look at our gatherings the same way again. That every time we're gathering with believers, we would see it as an opportunity to be strengthened so that we might go and declare the glorious message of the gospel to a world who desperately needs to be forgiven of their sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jim, for serving us so well, and um, boy, that was encouraging and helpful. Uh, we are to gather, we are to go, and I just want to encourage you uh, this week, 
with a couple things. Um, would you just take time to pray and ask God for boldness? Actually, I, uh, Jim will be here. I want to invite you if you want to come on up and have Jim pray for you and pray with Jim just for boldness. So take time this week to pray for boldness and then look for an open door that God might give you just to reach out to someone. Uh, we have little booklets at the back that are great uh, summary of the gospel with an, our address on the back so maybe god would give you an opportunity to share that with someone or just hand that to someone or just to invite a neighbor over but so pray for boldness and then look for an open door and take a step this week and i i, I trust god will give you that opportunity for some of you uh you are yet to come to the place where you've placed your faith in christ we're glad you're here and we would love to talk to you more about uh, this wonderful good news and how it changes our lives, how it gives us a heart, a love for God, a love for people, a desire to share this good news and see lives changed. And we, uh, we're glad you're here and want you to continue to come to hear about this good news. Um, I just want to bless you as we go. If you could just stand, we could stand together, receive God's blessing on us. May the Lord bless you this week. May the good news of Christ crucified for our sins and risen from the grave for our life, may that fill our hearts. May it fill our hearts with love and joy in him. And may the Lord empower you with boldness. And may you love others and share with them this week for their good, for God's glory. God bless you. You have a great week. You're dismissed.